That's all we got. All right. Hey, turn in your Bibles. Uh, let's, let's do the thing we came for, huh? I know. I know. Um, all right. So here we are um, continuing in our study. We're in the book of Hebrews chapter 4. And we're wrapping up the chapter today, chapter 4, verse 14, and uh, this is God's word. Since then, we have a a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I would call myself... um, an optimist. Um, I've got a positive attitude uh, to reluctantly cite a cliche, cliche, and I mean reluctantly. I hate cliches, but uh, the glass is half full for me, basically. Um, uh, we'll go places and, uh, and do things with people, and somebody may say, oh, will such and such be open when we get there? And my answer is always the same. Probably, probably going to be okay. Oh, what if we run into troubles and blah, 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 blah? Probably going to be all right. Oh, what if we get to such and such and there's something that our plan is thwarted? And I'm always like, eh, we'll find another plan. We'll think through it. We'll, you know, what if we have to go a half mile out of the way? Eh, we'll do it. We'll do it. We'll think through it. I'm, I'm that kind of a guy. Um, also, I'm uh, a firm believer in making ministry happen. Um, it's true that nothing of any spiritual good can happen without the Holy Spirit of God. That, that's the given. You hear me say that, right? Only the Holy Spirit of God can bless a ministry. That said, I've said this to many a younger uh, minister, you have to make ministry happen. You just don't go, well, I'm going to write a little thing and see if somebody shows up to it. And you have to make ministry happen. You have, to, you have to step on the gas and head somewhere. All right? I'm all for that. I'm also a cheerful guy. I like to crack jokes. I like to look at the uh, aberrations in things and make jokes about it. If there's tension in a, in a meeting or something like that, I like to crack a joke to break the tension. Happy guy. I'm generally a happy guy. I'll also add, uh, by way of introduction, that um, a hallmark of Christianity is that we are a happy-hearted people. It doesn't mean that our lives are not without complexity or even great tragedy and trauma and hurt. But we are a happy-hearted people. No one can laugh like a Christian. Christians laugh, but no one can laugh like a Christian because we've got this eternal hope that's beyond this life, bigger than this life. And so, happy, happy guy, happy Christians. But all that said, you may have noticed that life can be exceedingly scary and that our time here is short. It's a mist, and then we leave this earth, and there is a time for each of us to to die. And uh, one gains in life experience. The older you get, the more you realize how fragile you are. Isn't that true? The older you get, the more you realize how fragile you are. That's why we send 19-year-olds to war, to fight wars, because that dense Chicago softball in their head hasn't figured out yet that, uh, that uh, the situation is never anything less than tenuous. So in short, life is serious, and our time on this earth moves quickly, and there are lots of frightening scenarios that may await. Here's a quote for you. 
And it's, it ties right to our passage. It ties right to this idea that we, have, uh, that we are to hold fast our confession. All right, listen to what this writer says. The confession of faith we possess is a treasure beyond price. It cannot be lightly dismissed or thoughtlessly abandoned. It makes life worth living. And that's where we get our main idea today. Main idea is our high priest makes life worth living. Now, if someone were to ask you um, about Christianity and uh, why it's so great and, uh, and, and all, why it's so important to you, I wonder if you would articulate it in these terms. I cannot get this thing to stay on my head. Hold on. Ugh. Technology. Uh, would you say it that way? Our high priest makes life worth living. What's so interesting about Christianity? Why do, why do you guys go to that church all the time? Why are there cars in the parking lot on a Wednesday night? Well, our high priest makes life worth living. I, I don't think you would articulate it that way, and I don't expect that you would. I mean, that no one would understand what you're even saying, right? But um, the writer of Hebrews wants you to know very clearly that all the things you love and find beautiful about the gospel and your own personal salvation, the writer of Hebrews wants you to know that it all stems from that, that our great high priest makes life worth living. And so let's explore that uh, idea together. So our first point is holding fast to confession through confession. All right, holding fast uh, our confession through confession. Now, in my Bible, um, I guess I wrote this actually about a year ago. I got a lot of scribbling in here, red pencil, if you can see it. I, I have it's all over my Bible. But um, I think I wrote this about a year ago. I've got, a, I've got an underline and then a big red arrow. So I've underlined the last part of verse 14, hold fast our confession. And then I wrote a big arrow around the top and it points to the beginning of verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So my arrow takes me to the top of the verse, which is the whole point. And um, uh, uh, the application you see then is virtually built into the detail. Uh, thus the way I phrase the sermon point, holding fast to confession through confession. If you want uh, some strength in this life, if you want some confidence, if you want to consider the throne of God and your place there, hold fast your confession. If you want to be stable and safe in this life, hold fast your confession through confession, through Believing in something solid. I'll talk more about that on the next point too. Um, um, this is a recurring theme, ladies and gentlemen. This this idea of holding fast our confession. If uh, you know, chapter two, verse one says, "We must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it." That's a that's a plea. Um, chapter 3, verse 1, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Think about the, the Christ, the, the writer of Hebrews says. Um, chapter 3, verse 6, hold fast our confidence. Chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Uh, look at verse 11 of chapter 4. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. You see that the, uh, the, the pastor writer of this book is not offering up some helpful hints for you. He's pleading with you. He's pleading for the Christian's very safety. Now, I bet if you gave me 30 minutes or an hour, I could uh, write down three dozen names of people that I've known in my Christian life, throughout the, the, the entirety of my Christian life, who have um, 
either uh, walked away from the Christian faith altogether or who have made disastrous decisions and are walking around uh, desperately blind right at this moment. Blind, blind, blind by their sin. And I bet if I gave you 30 minutes or an hour, you could do the same thing. I bet you could come up with name after name after name of people who have fallen away or in a very dark place, uh, questioning their faith, maybe even, uh, maybe even uh, in danger of repudiating it. Um, that's pretty scary. That's pretty scary, isn't it? That's a reality that this pastor wants you to know about. You know, in, um, in Mark 10, 25, a very famous uh, verse, there's another one in Matthew, uh, I think 11 or somewhere, maybe 18, but um, where um, it, it, Jesus says it's easy for, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter heaven. Why does, why does Jesus say that? Uh, what, what, what kind of illustration is Jesus using? Well, he's taking the largest known object of the day, a camel, and he's putting it through the smallest known object of the day, the eye of a needle. It's hard to get that big thing, the biggest thing you can think about in ancient Palestinian culture, the biggest thing you can think about going through the smallest thing you can think about, that's really hard, is the illustration. And his point is, it's harder for a rich person to enter heaven. Why? You know Why? Because when you have light bulbs and running water and shelter when there's an ice storm and cold rains, and when you have good health care and cars that are dependable and phones that connect you all the time and money so that you're not in debtor's prison, it's very easy to focus on those comfortable things in this life, isn't it? I think I just described every single person in the room, didn't I? You don't have to have millions of dollars. We're, we're blessed. We have lots of comforts. And when, you, when you're blessed and you've got a lot of earthly things that give you comforts, it's very easy to neglect the most critical things for your soul. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying in verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. When you got all the comfort, when you got all the stuff, it's very easy to forget about the heavenly rest. What kind of rest is he talking about? Striving to enter that rest? He's talking about God's rest, God's own rest, real rest, personal rest, spiritual rest, rest that matters, rest that's beyond this life. If you would turn to Matthew, I'd appreciate that. Matthew chapter six. Speaking of what Jesus says, Matthew six, verse 19. Matthew six, verse 19. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Go to verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Verse 34, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Get the order right, says Jesus. Set your heart on heavenly things, things that really matter. Uh, It's very easy to be comfortable in this life and neglect the fate of your soul. Application for you. Um, I was reading a commentator who stole an illustration from another commentator, and now I'm stealing it too, but I'm giving him credit. Michael Horton is the guy who said this. Um, 
He's a, if you ever want to read something uh, smart and slightly difficult, Michael Horton's a good name. Um, but he said that the Christian life is like a ship. And so a ship is sailing along, that's you. You are the ship, it's your Christian life, and the rudder is God's word. The rudder gives you the right directions, the right navigation, God's word. But you don't go anywhere until the wind fills the sails. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Good illustration. The question is, what's the wind? Well, uh, the wind, of course, is the Holy Spirit of God. Um, As I say, nothing of any spiritual good can happen without the Holy Spirit's movement in uh, a person's life. But at the same time, the scriptures entreat us to walk in step with the Spirit, to submit to the Spirit, to be sensitive to the Spirit, to cooperate to the Spirit, to yield to the Spirit. And so how does the wind fill the sails? I'm telling you that the wind fills the sails when a life centers itself on the confession of our faith. That's the point. Oh, where's my passage here? Hold fast our confession. We've got a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Hold fast our confession. That is the wind that fills the sails. The Holy Spirit does it. But again, the question, how? Well, um, holding fast the confession, thinking about this great high priest, this great high priest who makes life worth worth living, it's it's a summary of the gospel, right? All the blessings afforded us in the gospel, forgiveness of sin, relief of conscience, and eternal security, an answer to meaning in life, where we came from, why we exist, why we think about the, the big meeting next Tuesday, why we make plans, all those answers are, are found in the gospel. And so how does the wind fill the sails? The wind fills the sails this way. We sing the gospel. We pray the gospel. We share the gospel. We gather like this to hear some guy up on a, on a platform proclaim the gospel. We come together with God's people and we talk about the gospel. We write in our doorposts. It's a part of our homes. I mean, it's a centerpiece in our lives. Um, it's not a, an addition. It's not, it's not something that kind of helps us along. It's the centerpiece. It's the hub. That's why the church is the hub of your life. Because all those things I just said are means of grace. It, they are the things God uses to grow you up. Don't think you can be healthy and independent from uh, church life because um, we, we need each other. We need to focus one another on this great gospel. Think of a person who's made a terrible mistake. Think of a person who's in a blind place. Think of a person who's really in a, in a desperate situation. You got a person in your mind? A Christian who's really in a, in a precarious, on a precarious perch. You got somebody? That could be you, my friend. That could be you so easily. Just remember that. Stop thinking, I've got this. You don't have it. You need the gospel reality pressed into your life by the means of grace and in submission and in step with the Holy Spirit. All right, next point. Uh, Holding fast to confession through computation. (laughs) Um, I get that sermon point from verse uh, 15. Look at it if you would. For we do not have, okay, so you see he's reasoning. He's saying, hey, hold fast your confession. And now he's going, hey, let's think about it now. He's saying, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. From the beginning of that, that verse, you can see that, that he's reasoning it out. For we don't have. Hey, let's reason it out. He's basically saying, hey, look, look, look. Hold fast your confession. Uh, hold fast your belief system. Hold fast your uh, sense of eternal security. But do that because of sound reasoning, not mere hunches or suppositions. Reason it out. Um, here's that sound reason. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, but without sin. Friends, is it hard to resist temptation? Sometimes it is, isn't it? Sometimes uh, it's a cookie on the plate and you go, ah, I'm not going to have that. Not a big one. But sometimes temptation's really big. It's really great. Sometimes it's really serious. And sometimes it presses on you and presses on you and presses on you. I don't know if you've noticed that you're dispositioned to sin, to certain sins. Have you noticed that? That you struggle with the same sins now that you did 20 years ago? You notice that? Hard to resist temptation. It's difficult. Have you ever had to deal with a temptation and you've had to resist it for days at a time, sometimes months at a time? Marriage is full of that, isn't it? You could say a hard thing. Oh, I'll get her. I got a bullet in my gun. And hmm, I really want to get her. Bang. Well, you can't put that bullet back. And, uh, you know, sometimes there's hurt. And sometimes you want to get an answer in or whatever. Or sometimes there's something going on at work. And, and you have to, we have to withhold for months and months and maybe years. It's hard to resist temptation. Well, think of the Savior who resisted and resisted and resisted and resisted his entire human life. Not once did he falter. Not once did he sin. Not once did he lose it. He resisted. Now, consider all of your failings. All the times you did give in. All the secret sins. All the misdeeds that are dark and very serious. Very degraded and warped. That was all put upon him. This one who resisted and resisted and resisted, he then went to the cross and said, I'll take their punishment, and it was put on him. All the shame you've ever felt, all the guilt, put on him. He became accursed for you. It's an amazing gospel, and that, that's the thing that makes life worth living because what, what hope or escape is there otherwise? Application. Um, I was thinking about this yesterday going, you know, <laughs> if I were God, I would be very disappointed in me. Don't you think that? Uh, I'm not God. That's good. But if I were God, I'd go, Ugh. I, I would be very disappointed in me. Do you, you think in those terms too? Well, that's you feeling the abrasiveness of your own sin. How do you think God really feels? He hates sin, but then he looks at you and he does so with mercy and um, with enough loving kindness that he sends his own son. It's just amazing. Well, here's what I want to share with you. Is Kim Killebeer in here right now? No. Is Ken in here? I thought I saw him. Yeah, there he is. Well, let me just tell you, one of the things I love about uh, Kim Killebrew's uh, ministry here is how she has successfully navigated, you know, over 50% of our church population and culture toward a sound theology. Um, 
Christianity tends to, you know, we, we feel things deeply and, and we're, we're moved by God's kindness. And, and it's very easy to kind of turn into sentimental waters. And Kim has, I think, very successfully navigated us toward truth, toward thinking. And I think her ministry might be able to be summed up by that Jen Wilkin uh, woman who spoke here a couple years ago. Who saw Jen Wilkin uh, at the ladies' conference? Uh, one, of the, one of her quotes that I just think is so wonderful is she said, if you want to feel deeply about God, you want that? If you want to feel deeply about God, think deeply about him. You know, if I want to feel deeply about Tammy, that's not arbitrary. I just don't go, hmm. you know, I think about her. I think about things that I love about her. I think about things that I like about her. I I consider her. I ponder her in my heart. And I feel deeply because of those things. I remember our history. I remember her interacting with my life. If you want to feel deeply about God, you have to think deeply about him. And the way you get the information is what he's left us in his word. He says, here's how I want you to think of me. Now, let me tell you, um, what's prevalent in our evangelical culture is a craving to feel deep things about God without thinking deep things about him. That's prevalent in our evangelical culture. But let me say very carefully, notice I did not say no deep reflection. I didn't say people want to feel things about God without any deep reflection. I did not say that. 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 All right? But neither did I say that... um, People who have a natural disposition to thinking through things, like some of you like number people out there and you medical people and yeah, nerds and stuff like that, you like thinking through things. Ooh, I'm not saying um, that uh, you're void of feelings either. I'm saying that the scriptures give us the right perspective, that we're to feel things, deep things about God. We are, but we're to do it on God's terms. We're to, we're to feel things deeply about God because he's told us wonderful things about himself. He's told us about mercy. He's told us about his loving kindness. He's told us that he wouldn't compromise his justice, and he didn't. He told us he'd be faithful both in judgment and grace. Faithful. We think deep things about God, then we feel things deeply. It's not right to feel that God's word is insufficient when it comes to closeness to God. You know that that's a big thing right now. I just don't, I need something that's more personal. That's what I need. I need something more personal. Um, I, I want to feel deep things, and I want to. I just want. I just crave this personal God. Well, guess what? Jesus is the living Word, and God gave us His Word. You know who wrote it? The Holy Spirit. You know who resides inside of you? The Holy Spirit. You know who illumines truth? The Holy Spirit. You know who unlocks thinking? The Holy Spirit. It doesn't get more personal than a personal God who's spoken to you personally through his personal word and calls his son, the savior, the living word. It does not get more personal than that. So listen, read authors. We all ride the shoulders of Christians who have gone before us and have experienced life and write about it and talk about it and preach about it, put conferences on and come to classes like this. Come on, do that. But don't let that usurp the deeply personal um, things that come from um, God in his word. Uh, I'll give you one quick illustration. We'll we'll try to move on here. Um, Have you ever um, read a Christian book and uh, you're reading through this Christian book 
And, uh, oh, author's writing, author's writing, author's writing, author's, and then there's a big block of verses, you know, a big block of the scriptures. And you come to the big block of the scriptures and you're like, yeah, the Bible. And what else is this guy saying? Oh, you've done that, huh? I never have. Yes, I have. I do it all the time. You know, I'm like, hey, I got a Bible. I got a Bible right here. Uh, why do I need to read, the, read it right there? You, you skip over. Do you see how flawed we are? We, we, we clamor over the earthly writer, the earthly writer, the earthly writer. And then we get to the scriptures and we're like, yeah, the Bible. Uh, let's read what the earthly writer has to say. That's how we do it. Not healthy. Notice, ladies and gentlemen, what, what is taught of this personal son of God. It says that he is a high priest. Um, at the beginning of verse 14, he's a great high priest. The great doesn't just mean he's neato. The great means that any picture or type of priest that came before him was less than him and pointed to him. Uh, it was a, a priest that came before Jesus was a predecessor of a greater reality. That's why he's a great high priest. The priestly work of the Old Testament was temporary and thus repeated, repeated, repeated. The high priestly work of Jesus Christ is once for all, never to be repeated. Jesus said, it is finished. And you know what he meant? It is finished. It's accomplished. Notice the second item, which is the humanity of Christ. We don't have a high priest in verse 15 who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hey, friends, Jesus was born of Mary. She kept him alive by feeding him. He grew in wisdom and stature. He knows what it's like to, to be a human being. He knows what it feels like. Um, in Philippians 2, it says he took upon himself a human nature. And I'll tell you, um, you know the movie, the, the first Matrix movie? Y'all remember that? Um, I can't tell you. I've even shown it to Tammy. I, I, there's an illustration. You know, you know the story? Neo is this computer nerd guy. And uh, he's kind of introduced to the fact that human beings are just batteries for this machine world. All right, so we're, uh, human beings are born. Anybody know this storyline? Human beings are born, and basically the machines hook them up to this thing and put them in this, like, solution. So you kind of stay in this, uh, like, embryonic state your whole life. And they implant memories, and you live your life, and it's all in your head just to keep you kind of... Until you croak, and then they pull the plug and flush you out, and they put a new one in there. All right? Well... In the Matrix, uh, Neo takes this, uh, this pill, uh, the, the, that dude jumps in his life and gives him a pill, and, and, and anyway, he gets extracted from the system and gets flushed out, and every time I've seen that in the movie, I th- I, it makes me think of Jesus coming into this world, and uh, I've downloaded that movie, cut it into pieces, put it, I put it in a PowerPoint show, and I, I have, I've not been able to show it, because I just don't think it's a strong enough illustration to show up on the screen, but talking about it, I think is Okay. It's, I mean, when you see it, it's just disturbing. You're like, ugh, it's dark and kind of, you know. Uh, um, but I mean, it, just the, the gross slurpiness and gooiness of him getting shot through this thing and out he plops into this big pool of blech, you know. I just think, man, the Lord of glory humbled himself and took upon himself a human nature. Um, you know, one of the... If, if, I, if, if we had a church sign outside, you know, one of those roving light things, you know, that, that like ruins the neighborhood. And I had a sermon. You know what I'd love to put on there? I would love to put, just imagine this, driving by, going, I wonder what goes on in that church. I, I would love to have scrolling by, Jesus had raging B.O. I would love to put on there. 
And would, would that not just pique your interest? Wow, Jesus had raging. Yeah, you think they had arid extra dry back then? They had all had one, one, pair of, one set of clothes. Of course Jesus had raging B.O. He didn't have toilet products like we do. He knows what it's like to be a human being. He knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to have to eat. He knows what it's like to feel betrayal. He knows what it's like, ladies and gentlemen. Have you ever felt betrayed? Have you ever felt overwhelmed? Have you ever felt uh, the weight of your own personal guilt against a perfect God? Well, here's the gospel. Jesus understands you. Jesus knows what it feels like to be you. And Jesus took the penalty for you. He's a great high priest. He felt it because he bore it. Uh, last point. Uh, holding fast to confession through provision. Look at verse 16. Um, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's never more truer a test, ladies and gentlemen, um, of where we are spiritually than our approach to this God. Never a truer test. Uh, if, you're a, if you're a Christian and it's, it's hard for you to come before God, that's a, that's, a, that's a good test of where you are. You know, I remember uh, my early days of Memphis, and uh, I was certainly out of fellowship with the church and out of fellowship with the Lord. My early days in Memphis, I remember driving down roads. I mean, there's a lot of churches in this town. You know, you come down from Chicago, you fly in, you're like, dang, look at all the steeples. It's, I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing how many churches there are. And I remember driving down the road in my early days in Memphis, and I would see, Nazarene and Christ. And I would, I would look over there, and I'd see it, and I'd just, I just kind of look down. And I'd see another church, Jesus and Christ, and I'd go, oh. I just kind of had to look away. That, that's, a, that's, that's probably not a healthy place, is it? Um, but if you come to the throne of grace with freedom and confidence and boldness, uh, ready to receive mercy and find grace and help of time of need, I mean, that says something too, doesn't it? Oh, God, receive me. Receive me because of your reasons. Receive me because of what Jesus did. I mean, it says a lot about the state of your soul. Quite a lot of people live on the fringe of Christian life and I bet you have too at some points. Um, but I'll add that I've seen a lot of people on the inside of Christian life, very active, very busy, serving, who are yet on the fringe. And I'm saying to you that this is a good test. Approaching the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Um, I got a quote here for you. This is uh, from a guy named Richard Phillips. And... Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, listen to this. This is a, a great description of what happened um, in, a, in priestly service, okay? So in the Old Testament, tabernacle, temple, priestly service. Listen to this. This is a great description. Once a year, the high priest entered the inner sanctum, inner sanctum of the tabernacle to make atonement for the sins of the people. First offering a sacrifice for his own sins, and then cleansing himself with water, the high priest, and he alone, one day a year, and that day only, entered into the very presence of God. There in the Holy of Holies, he saw the Ark of the Covenant with the two golden angels on top, just like Indiana Jones. And um, he, uh, 
inside that is, is God's law, which was, of course, broken by his people. All right, so you got the scene. You've got the tabernacle in the midst of the people. You've got all of Israel encamped around it, this nomadic people. And so let's talk about the tabernacle. And they, the priest goes in one day a year, and everybody knows what's going on. The priest makes a sacrifice. He kills an animal. He washes himself, and, and the, everybody knows, okay, today's the day. The priest is going in there, and he's going to take some blood in there from an animal that was killed. And uh, they know what's in there, too. They know it's the Ark of the Covenant. They know it's God's law in there. The Ten Commandments are in there. The tablets are in there. They know that the law's there, that the priest is going in, that he's going in with blood. To avoid punishment, the high priest brought blood from an animal sacrifice. He sprinkled it on the top of it, the mercy seat, it's called. And um, the... uh, the blood which interposed between God's piercing gaze and the tablets of the law. When the blood was offered, God's wrath was propitiated. That is, it was turned away from the people's sin. All right, so we look at that and we go, that's weird. Of course it's weird. It's supposed to be weird. It's supposed to be strange. It's supposed to be somewhat vulgar. Shedding of blood, taking blood in. Think about it. There's my law. God, God makes this, this picture for them. That's my law that you've broken And for me to meet with you, blood. You know why? Because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. The wages of sin is death. And if you've sinned, then you got to pay the wages unless somebody pays it for you. What a picture. The priest goes in and does this thing and, and all of Israel knows this is happening and they know that it has to happen year after year after year. But it points to something. It points to the savior who has done it once for all. It is finished. It is completed. That means that your sin and yours and yours and yours are the most shameful things you've ever done. The things that separated you from God have been washed clean. That's what the Savior did on the cross. Uh, Last thing is this. A quick quote and a couple things. Um, a, A commentator wrote this. He said, the charge to hold fast, hold fast your confession. The charge to hold fast is not merely an appeal to endurance, but an exhortation. Uh, He says, hold it fast and hold it forth. I kind of like that. He's talking about sharing it too, but I, don't you like that? Hold it fast and hold it forth, this confession of your faith. The Christian life, ladies and gentlemen, is not just you know, grinding it out. It's not just enduring it until we finally get out of this place. It's not that. It is, uh, it is not uh, a hairsprayed, tassel-shoed, uh, sing-song voice, oh, brother, that cultural thing. It's not that. It's not a bad acting job. It is cataloging eternal spiritual realities. That's what we're supposed to do. That's why we're here. We are cataloging eternal spiritual realities. Have you ever seen a, um, a movie where uh, some bad guys have stolen some money and they throw it on the floor or throw it on the bed, a big pile of money, and they get in that big pile of money and they go, ah, and they do snow angels in the money. You ever seen that? Oh, all this money I've got. What I'm saying to you is that we're supposed to be doing snow angels, so to speak, in the realities of the gospel. Not hunches, not presuppositions, but what God has specifically taught us about the beauty of what he's accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. We're supposed to revel in it. And uh, those, those means of reveling it reveling in it are the means of grace. It's what fills the sails of the Christian life and makes you feel things deeply. Let's pray. Our Father, um, I am I'm guilty. Um, I'm guilty of being around 
truth and around writings and around music and around Christians and um, still wanting to put distance and still wanting to control, still wanting to not let go of things. I'm guilty. And we all are, Lord. We all are. And we pray that um, we would hold fast our confession. We pray that we would do so by computation, by reasoning and thinking and rejoicing in the things that you've shown us about yourself. We pray, Lord, that we would um, hold fast our confession by our confession and that we would deeply consider with great thanks the provisions you've made for us eternally in Jesus Christ, this great high priest who's done the work. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate you.